Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to a new year of Polar Times. Happy New Year. It's the end of January when I'm recording this, so that feels a little bit weird to be saying. But anyway, Happy New Year. I hope that your January and your 2022 is off to a good start, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and that you had a nice end of year break. Um, so yeah, we are, we're going to be back. We're going to be back every other week, hopefully with new episodes. We have some good ones already recorded. And indeed, this episode was recorded at the end of last year. And we also have some really good ideas amongst the team for uh, coming up and uh, moving forwards into the new term. So I'm excited to bring all of those to you. I had a lovely time chatting to this guest, as ever. They're always great. Um, so, and they were also a person who reached out to us to be on the podcast. And so I want to say thank you to them for reaching out to us. And you too, if you're a polar person, can reach out to us at any time if you would like to be on the podcast to feature your science or... Um, your stories, as, as I just said at the beginning, or like anything. And if you live or work or love polar places, then please, we would love to hear from you. Today, I'm talking all about um, Arctic fox ecology and uh, my guests' experiences with them in Iceland, which was awesome. So I really hope that you enjoy it. Just a quick note, I do want to apologise for my audio quality on this occasion. I was doing it from work and I didn't have my usual microphone set up, so I know that's a bad excuse. I'm sorry, I will organise my life better in the future. So um, there we go. Yep, sorry about that. (laughs) Still sounds good. And yeah, there you go. Let's dive into today's episode. All right, everyone, please welcome to the stage for this week's episode, my guest for today, Dominic Arendt. Hi, Dominic. How's it going? How are you? Hi, it's going great. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me. It's a pleasure. No, no problem. Thanks for coming on to Polar Times. So this is the first section of the uh, the podcast. Everyone knows it by now. We call it the icebreaker. It's where we, we get to know you, our guest. And as ever, my first question is, who are you and how did you come to polar life? Yeah, so uh, my name is Dominic, and uh, how did I come to Polar Life? I think it um, starts a little bit with uh, me studying uh, forestry bachelors in uh, Freiburg in South Germany. Um, but as well, I had some uh, lectures on, on uh, species protection and stuff like this. And at the University of Freiburg, there's actually a guy who's um, doing research in uh, Greenland, mostly on lemming life cycles stuff like this and he's doing it for a really long time and he's generally doing for every generation of students a talk it's more or less every time the same i think (laughs) but it's really funny and uh, entertaining and nice and i think yeah that was kind of the first point of getting in touch with polar science stuff like this and yeah then I lost it a little bit out of the fo- out of my focus, but uh, when I came back to the task of finding a master's thesis project at the end of the, my master's, which was like one year ago, 
more or less. I uh, saw a documentary about this research vessel, the Polar Stern. Probably I felt about it. And I was again really hyped. And I was, oh, it's so awesome. <laughs> and so I looked a little bit what are the first opportunities to get into at least a little bit up in the north and eventually got contact with, from a uh, Arctic Fox research person, Esther, who supervises my project now as well. And yeah, this is how it got going a little bit, <laughs> got me into the polar science. Yeah. Lovely. So is it something that you kind of have always been interested in or just that this interest grew whilst you're at university? Uh, I think it grew mostly at university, I have to say. yeah. Um, before I started my bachelor or I, I did a gap year before started studying after school. And uh, when I was done with school, I was not so much into uh, environmental or life sciences or whatever. I thought about studying uh, history or philosophy. So what was it about pol like the polar world that hooked you? Was it just the passion of this uh, this lecturer that you had? And then the Polar Stern. I mean, we're very familiar with the Polar Stern on, 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 on here on Polar Times. It's a it's a cool ship. Mm, I don't know. It's it's hard to tell. It just uh, pulled me a little bit. I like wild nature and something a, bit, a little bit like not so managed and not having such a huge history of land use. I mean, in, in middle Western Europe, you always have long long time landscapes have been used and it's just something else i guess just through my interest a little bit and what else it's a bit hard to tell actually but it just somehow uh, attracted me and uh, had some kind of fascination it's e extreme <laughs> i like uh, alpine sports like mountaineering and stuff for rather unpleasant environments uh, comes a bit from this maybe i don't know yeah nice oh yeah that's a really interesting point that you make i suppose if you're doing, it's the same in the UK, if you study ecology or wildlife here, you probably have to do kind of agricultural interactions because <laughs> there's not that many wild places, is there? But definitely there is at the pole, so for sure. All right, so why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the project that you're working on now? Yeah, so uh, my project I'm working on now is about uh, Arctic fox and about their influence on vegetation and on soil nutrition, and mostly around their fox dens. They dig like their holes in the ground to breed there. And since uh, when since they use their dens a lot of times and during a lot of uh, generations as well they are used heavily throughout ages some throughout centuries and yeah since they are uh, there every year every year after a long time the uh, nutritions and all their scats and phases accumulate there more or less and uh, therefore there's a like lush green vegetation normally uh, within uh, more or less tundra habitats, a little bit more scarce, not so much species, not so green, not so many flowering species. And yeah, then you visit a fox den and it's flowering there. It's almost like they have a garden uh, <laughs> above their uh, holes. Yeah. And my uh, research topic is uh, in this. I um, tried to. Um, 
describe this effect for Iceland, which has not been done yet. Um, it has been done for Greenland and Sweden and all, but not for Iceland. And yeah, so I went to Iceland <laughs> and did uh, some field work. I was one month in the field um, collecting vegetation samples, soil samples. Yeah, uh, more or less working outdoors. <laughs> and yeah, then afterwards I um, tried to analyze my data, digitize it and stuff. And now I'm in the time of writing it up, everything. Yeah. By the end of the year, I hope for um, handing in my thesis and then the first step is done. Okay, lovely. Do you have any preliminary results that you'd like to share <laughs> without yeah, giving too much away? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I've, I think my results are more or less um, made up. So yeah, definitely the foxes, at least in the region where I visited the fox then and did my study are having a huge impact on uh, the vegetation. There are a lot more flowering plants. There are more grasses. Uh, more perennial, perennial herbs and as well the soil nutritions as I could um, tell are uh, elevated for example nitrate and uh, phosphate which comes of course from their uh, scats from the phaesis and as well from carcasses which rot there like the leftovers from food <laughs> And yeah, I think that's really an interesting result because in the area where I observed the dance, they are all within a three kilometer range uh, from the shore. And they feed mainly on, on seabirds, fish, carcasses, something like this. So they mainly feed on marine resources. So there's a energy flow, a nutrient flow from the sea from marine resources to land and the foxes accumulate those nutrients. They are uh, vectors there for, for uh, yeah, mostly nitrate and phosphate and something like this. And yeah, this is, um, I think quite an yeah, exciting uh, finding because uh, it's uh, more or less, mostly it's, it's unlikely that uh, resources flow from the marine to the terrestrial habitat because uh, normally everything flows down <laughs> to the water yeah okay fascinating so they're really kind of essential really they're like ecosystem engineers for the places that they live tell me a little bit more about them so you get them i always think of arctic foxes as being really far north and kind of nomadic but obviously they must um breed not on the sea ice <laughs> on land <laughs> in summer yeah so you get them in iceland but then do you get them all around the arctic as well yeah, you get them all around the Arctic as well. You get them in Greenland, in Sweden, in uh, North America, uh, Canada, of course. Yeah. And are they uh, kind of separate populations? Sorry. Yeah, definitely. They are separate populations. Um, of course, the Icelandic fox population is uh, on its own <laughs> a long, long time. <laughs> uh, eventually, they had to get there somehow, but this is still a bit of uh, uncovered all this. Um, but yeah, they are uh, the Icelandic fox population is special in, in terms of they are not feeding on on uh, lemmings, of course, because there are no lemmings in Iceland, uh, which they do in every other uh, place. And there are no red foxes, no red fox, um, as they are uh, as there are in Sweden or North America. 
And the red fox and the arctic fox are kind of uh, overlapping in their uh, habitats since the climate change um, and change in environment. The red fox is gaining a lot of traction and kind of uh, overlaps more and more with the arctic fox. So there's a lot of more, uh, I would say, pressure on arctic fox in other uh, populations than Iceland. Okay, so the red foxes outcompete arctic foxes for resources and stuff yeah yeah yeah. okay interesting yeah well i was going to ask that was going to be my next question i mean how are they i mean impacted by climate change we always think of polar bears as being (laughs) the symbol for uh, the north the mammals being impacted but arctic foxes must be more so maybe um, they are definitely, yes. Um, since in uh, Iceland, there's not uh, yet such a huge change in the environment, of course, because there's not so much ice. Um, and there's not this thing with the uh, red fox going further, further and further north. Um, eventually, they even start to uh, profit from changes in environment as for um, migrating geese for example the, and for shifting bird populations since they feed on them but um, it's a bit uh, hard to tell in general because on the different continents it's uh, another picture so um, I would not uh, yeah I can't make like def- definite um, statements now. How is it uh, in Sweden or in uh, Greenland? But uh, they are not really uh, having a good time <laughs> everywhere with climate change. No. Right. Yeah. And and so, so it sounds like the Arctic foxes in Iceland are quite, um, you know, distinctly separated from the rest of. Uh, their population uh, they're not uh, they're not at all a subspecies or anything they haven't uh, diversified that far it's not been that long since they they broke off i guess yeah you're right they're not a subspecies um but yeah they are uh, functionally separated from every other fox arctic fox population in the world um yeah and they are uh, actually a, an interesting example about uh, wildlife management because they are hunted to now and um but uh since the 70s um when the population was like really uh, down was really low population in the 70s and they um profited from shifting bird community bird migration patterns and they profited from that and are now um on a like more or less high all-time high at least since records since they are record um population wise but it's as well interesting since the hunting pressure has not really changed that much. So, yeah, <laughs> There's that, that's another topic. But uh, yeah, can be uh, it's the question how uh, what 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 is the purpose of the hunting there and uh, what they want to achieve with it. So, uh, what is the purpose of them being hunted? Like economic subsistence, or are they a pest? Do they? Do people feel like they're feeding on livestock? Yeah, it's right. a, they're they're feeding on 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 sheep, but not so much. It's not a huge part of their uh, diet. And of course, if you have a full-grown sheep, and uh, imagine an Arctic fox, it's yeah, I can't imagine a, <laughs> tackling a sheep on yeah. its own. <laughs> it, it happens, but it, it's not really 
vastly common. And okay. uh, what's a bit um, more of an issue maybe for, for farmers is the eider duck farming. For the eider duck farming, the farmers want the eider ducks uh, sitting on their nests and not being disturbed. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So how, what's the picture for Arctic foxes kind of overall? Do you know, are they, are they struggling? Are they declining? Are they endangered? What's the, what's their overall trend? Um, overall, I would say they are struggling. They have been uh, in a IUCN um, program stuff as, uh, what was it? Oof. I have to say, I can't remember the uh, accurate, um, what, what they it's not keystone species but they had some kind of award for for striking species okay or some kind of category are they like vulnerable or something yeah so they're not uh on the on the red list or some uh, something like this but uh, it's it's a matter of um, investigations definitely i guess that's maybe probably true for a lot of arctic uh, fauna sadly okay. <laughs> yeah okay so um I was just really fascinated then you what you said at the beginning then that um the foxes come back to the same burrows for like decades or, or centuries did you say yeah. how how do you know that um well it's uh it's uh recorded um at least um you, from local knowledge knowing that this stand is used for a long time and as well some uh, historic uh, um, findings okay. and uh, the dens are can happen to be like huge I don't know, like plus 20 entrances and definitely it's possible for them to have uh, 20 meters or more in diameter. Okay. And is that just like one pair, one breeding pair per den or is it like a group? Only okay. one breeding pair per den and they have the like territory around it and then it's only one breeding pair in this territory and on this den. But of course, eventually a fox um, dies off or migrates or whatever. And then there's somehow it can be that there's a new fox occupying this den. And do they do they migrate quite far? Do they end up like in the winter when they when the breeding season is over? Do they wander like quite far distances? Uh, they migrate uh, and they can wander far distances, um, but it definitely depends on them being a territory or if they have a already settled for a territory. And you know if they are uh, like a lone wanderer and having not a and not having a territory, then of course they um, are urged to move as far as they eventually find their home. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure I've seen the thing of them like following polar bears so that they can pick up the scraps that the, <laughs> that the polar bears find. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, fabulous. So, what is the um, what's the kind of I suppose wider significance of the research that you're currently doing like why is it important i suppose um yeah so it's uh, firstly important because they uh, definitely take the role of ecosystem engineers there at least for those like small patches on the landscape and because they thereby um drive nutrient transfers significant as well and it's not so that Sorry, one second. It's not that it's that nigh, uh, well. Um, it's not as that well um, re researched. <laughs> um, so the nutrient transfer um, vectorized by uh, mammals is quite interesting, 
but as well, it's not really that much known about it. Maybe for example, uh, in the Pleistocene, there was there was uh, there were huge animals, of course, <laughs> like a megafauna. And uh, when after they all died off, after the mass extinction extinction of them, um, of the dinosaurs and uh, whatever and uh, megafauna, there was only left like five to seven percent of the lateral nutrient transfer. So um, it's actually, this is known from modeli modeling results and stuff, of course, but I think it illustrates the, the importance of um, nutrient transfers by uh, wild animals or can be by livestock as well. Um, but yeah, so I think it's uh, important to uh, do research on this topic before all these uh, species going go extinct or shift their behavior or whatever because uh, yeah it's quite relevant for the environment and for the ecosystem at all uh, as a whole uh, so, yeah. absolutely no yeah absolutely yeah i mean, and also to some degree we might not realize how important they are until they are gone so <laughs> it's good to know <laughs> it's good to know before um... okay why don't you um why don't you tell us a little bit about the the fit work that you did how how did how how did you go about sorting that out and getting there and how was it when you were there and all that kind of stuff your fieldwork experiences yeah with pleasure so um yeah how did i get there um when i started to plan all this it was uh, like eventually it was certain uh, which area i can go to and where i can do my field work and i had like I've never seen a fox then before I went to Iceland this year. So <laughs> it was all in my head and I was thinking about how I could organize the field for it, what would be appropriate methods. But of course, if you have never done it before or have never seen it before, it's a bit, uh, can be a bit hard <laughs> to organize it or to make up your mind about uh, appropriate uh, methods. Um, so I had some um, preliminary, preliminary time in Iceland for organizing all myself and sorting everything out when I was in Reykjavik. Um, and then I got a rental car, um, a Dacia Duster, which for Icelandic uh, means is a, a small car probably. <laughs> For European means, it's a uh, car for uh, yeah the, for off road. For Icelanders, it could be a bit bigger and higher and <laughs> have more power. But I got this car uh, because it was uh, cheap. <laughs> right, I rented it, and then I went with this car and all my camping equipment and a lot of um, cooler boxes which I used for the soil samples. <laughs> uh, I went to the north of Iceland, to the northeast, to Melrakasletta. It's a uh, peninsula and it's quite scarcely populated. There are not that much people living. Uh, there are uh, some farms spread over the area, but it's there's not much going around. <laughs> the next uh, like proper city is uh, Husavik, which is not too big as well, or Akureyri. But that's two hours drive. Um, yeah, so I got there and then I was like, okay, now how I'm going to start. <laughs> uh, 
I got some um, locations of fox stands from a local hunter, which was okay. very helpful. I yeah. got some GPS coordinates uh, with uh, information about the use, about the recent use. And this was really helpful, of course, because uh, when you stand there and you have like this peninsula, which is, I don't know, how many hundred square kilometers thick, uh, you can <laughs> just start off with wandering through the landscape and search for fox stands, but uh, yeah. time consuming and not really uh, efficient. So I started to visit those stands I had uh, the locations of uh, with my smartphone, just tried to navigate there. And it went actually quite well. I found all the dens uh, the guy sent me the coordinates of. And when I visited the den, I of course set a nice uh, form sheet with all the parameters I wanted to collect. Uh, so I started with uh, making some photos, making some pictures, taking some notes on the den use of the overall picture, I don't know, elevation, slope, altitude, um, yeah, all this kind of more or less basic stuff which you would uh, start to uh, collect when you're in field. And then I, um, so as you know, my goals were uh, one, to check the vegetation and second, to take soil samples for the nutrition uh, nutrition measures afterwards. So I went there and had uh, like this kind of a frame, which is 50 times 50 centimeter big. It's just a metal frame, nothing fancy. And I placed this frame 10 times on the on a fox den after I measured it. And yeah, just collected every plant species that which was in this frame. I collected its um, abundance and it's like uh, how much uh, space it took on Braun Planquet Scala, which is yeah maybe a bit. Uh, it's a really old method, but it works. It's ordinal, so it's like you have the steps one to five, and you have to decide whether it's one or it's five. Five is the highest abundance where all of the frame would be covered with one species. And yeah, I have some species I had to um, I had to look up in the book. I had a field guide. Some species I had to ask a friend who knows uh, well about Icelandic plant species, which was very helpful. <laughs> and some species I tried with the uh, app. I think it was Flora Incognita. Okay, <laughs> yeah. that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, was, nice. Uh, yeah. So, so were you there in summer? Yes, I was there in uh, July, the whole of okay. July. And you just out there, were you on your collecting samples on your own? Um, I was there more or less alone. Um, when during my free time, I was uh, staying at a campsite camping. Um, yeah. And since it's scarcely populated, there's not that much uh, going on on this peninsula. Uh, yeah, there was a bit of, um, uh, yeah. Detox from uh, society, you could call it. Mm. It sounds quite nice. Yeah. So yeah, I guess in the summer, is it was it like light all the time? Was there is it, was there any hours of darkness? Yeah. yeah. It was uh, light. I think all the time. Maybe in the in into the middle of the night, uh, it was like one hour a bit darker. Okay, but yeah, that's not really oh. the huge difference. 
I had to uh, start to deal with it. It was actually a bit uh, hard as well for sleeping because, of course, after a long day at field work, you're just tired. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I started to sleep with Oropax, with the earplugs, and just put uh, my head over my eyes. <laughs> Sounds lovely. So did you have uh, did you get many encounters with Arctic boxes themselves? Um, when I was doing my field work, actually, I had uh, not a single encounter with an Arctic fox. <laughs> oh, wow. So all the dens you were looking at, were they like abandoned or just are they really shy? I, I would say they were not quite, uh, I would say <laughs> they were not abandoned, but the uh, hunters were done with their work. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and um, at the end of the hunting season, the fox are extremely shy, of course. Right. And the uh, fox, which are left, <laughs> try to avoid people. So that was the par point there. Mm, one week, a uh, couple of weeks before, I was with my supervisor from Iceland on a field trip to another uh, area in Iceland where there's a hunting ban. It's a nature reserve. And I encountered a lot of fox there. Ah, good. Phew, nice. I was going to say, <laughs> that's that would be, that'd be a shame. <laughs> okay. And how how was that? Definitely. It was very special. Yeah. When you have, like, I, I of course, I did a lot of preliminary work and tr tried to uh, dig myself in into fox ecology and everything. Um, but uh, when you don't, when you've never seen it before, it's a bit of like, you have this image in your head, but you don't know. How it actually looks and mm -hmm. the fox were actually smaller than i expected it somehow um yeah pretty small cute <laughs> definitely really fluffy i think i, I had the luck to uh, visit some fox stands where they were breeding so i saw some oh, nice. as well, which is adorable of course <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, come on, That's one of the best bits of science, the field work. So you've got to at least see your study animals <laughs> when you're out there. So that's good. Well, yeah, they change colour as well, don't they, between summer and winter, the fur. Do, they, do the ones in Iceland do that? Or is that a... uh, yeah, they do it as well. Yeah. That's, okay. uh, so did you, see, uh, yeah. did you see them in summer or in the winter coats? I saw them in summer. Yeah, summer. I was uh, in, in Iceland, I was in the, during the summer. I imagine you have to go about getting like permission to go on people's land or anything and stuff like that to approach these dens in the first place. Is there, you have to do anything like that to, before you could go on your field work? Yeah. Yeah. I actually just did it when I went there, uh, since I had contact with the hunter and he said, yeah, maybe you should talk to the landowners. Okay. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, so you just have to ask them, call I them and ask them. There. Yeah. Well, I didn't have a phone number or something. I just oh, okay. My car <laughs> yeah. My map. Uh, oh, okay. I, have to, I want to go to this den and uh, maybe this house that's closest. So I uh, <laughs> went there and checked and actually they all were quite nice. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I met some uh, really old people, which did not speak well English, of course, but um, I think they understood more or less what I wanted and agreed with me going on their land. Yeah. And so our Arctic foxes, they're not protected in Iceland at all. If they're not being hunted, not even, not at all. Okay. Well, interesting. Yeah. I guess if people um, see them as a pest, then... Yeah, I don't think red foxes are red foxes protected in the UK. I've, I've actually got an idea. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. 
yeah, the reason I was asking you about how if you needed um, to sort out like permission and planning and stuff like that is because you you've come to your masters in quite a different way, I suppose, to a lot of people in that you've kind of um, planned it and funded it and proposed it yourself. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. So, can you tell us a little bit about how? Um, that process was why you decided to do that rather than I mean for I suppose for, we should say for listeners in well in my own experience the, the most common way for people to get a master's is you apply for like a, um, you know like a it's a degree so you you know you apply for it like an undergrad and you do either a research or a taught one but there's no reason you can't do it like you did obviously and uh, propose your own so I was just wondering how why you chose that route yeah, so it was a bit like this at the end of my the, the, the lectures I had to take for my master's thesis. I was like, okay, I did my bachelor's in Freiburg, my bachelor thesis in Freiburg. I did the uh, lecture stuff um, for the master's in Freiburg. And I was like, okay, this would be a good opportunity to um, get to know something else, go abroad. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. That was uh, how I got the idea of doing a project like uh, this, something in a distant country, not too much um, connected with the University of Freiburg. Of course, I they 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 of course they give me the grades and everything, sure. But um, yeah, and if you do it like this, like me, it's it's possible in Freiburg, but you have to organize it by yourself and find supervisors and all that. Um, yeah, it's probably not the easiest way to uh, do it, but uh, I discovered it's, uh, I, I learned a lot. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a project. And if you uh, are able to finish it, or maybe not, you can learn a lot and achieve a lot. <laughs> so, what, so, like, what kind of things did you learn? And how did you go about finding someone to supervise your project? Mm -hmm um well maybe first about uh what what i learned i think i learned a lot of uh it's uh, there goes a lot of work into writing uh up the um, applications for funding <laughs> <laughs> you can spend like days and days with googling and uh, browsing through lists of potential funders without finding a single fitting stuff I actually found a lot of interesting uh, grants or funds for the UK, but uh, since I'm not student in the UK, it, it didn't really uh, fit for me. <laughs> mm. But yeah, props to, to you. This uh, actually where there was a lot uh, which was would fit if I would have been in the UK. <laughs> um, and yeah, what else did I learn? It's always uh, good to make a proper plan, uh, plan as much as you can do, but at the end, just uh, relax. It will all sort out eventually. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's good advice. Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, like you say, because I don't know, I can only talk about my own experience of higher education in the UK, of course, but since then being in academia later like applying for funding and grants and stuff like that is a massive part of academia you some might even say it's like the biggest part <laughs> of academia but it's not something that was really covered in an undergrad stem degree in my own experience so i think to 
like to do it yourself at the early stage of your career and have that experience it's like exceptional really and it's it's uh, um I'm sure it could stand you good stead if you carry on in the future for sure I mean I've applied for a bursary in the past which kind of counts but it's not really the same so I can't say I've ever done a funding application properly for a project so um yeah so 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 yeah so um how do you go about finding your uh, supervisor for um, for this because that's then also the other half once you've got the money you've got to find someone who will take you on and you've got to hope that they're a good supervisor <laughs> yeah yeah uh yeah i i'm i'm fortunate that i have a uh, friend in freiburg who is uh, who, or who has been into research doing research stuff in iceland and in greenland and he has really good contacts. I think he's a master of networking. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> I, and and eventually, or I have a we have a common friend, and he introduced us, and then we got along very well together, and uh, had uh, some beers and talked for a long time. And he said, "Okay, if you're interested in this and this and that, uh, if in Artifox or in Gerfalcon or in uh, Moss or whatever." I have a contact there and there and there. And then I just went on writing emails to the most uh, promising uh, project or most promising persons. And yeah, then the Esther from the Icelandic Institute of Natural History replied and she had a, a pretty good idea about what would be feasible as a project for me and um, what could be done in the framework of the thesis and what she can help me with. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was just I think um, good context and contacts and a lot of uh, work emailing people. <laughs> no, it sounds great. Yeah, I mean that is a, a textbook how a lot of scientists do their networking and that's over beers. So uh, <laughs> for sure, yeah. And also another yeah another thing like you're saying. That some definitely something that I've learned. Don't be afraid to just email people out of the blue, the cold email, like a cold call, we call it. Um, because I mean, the worst they can say is no, and then you've not lost anything. So sure. absolutely, yeah. that if people who are listening, if you take something away, then take something like that away. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Lovely. Is there anything that you might have done differently having come through the process now? Yeah. Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, there's one thing I would have done a bit differently, maybe. So uh, as I told you, I took uh, some uh, soil samples for analyzing them in the lab. And I was uh, yeah, having the hopes or I had the vague, vague, uh, uh, or had the, the vague contact of people who could have helped me with it. And it was, yeah, maybe you could go to this laboratory in Iceland or maybe to this. And it was like, yeah, it will work out somehow. And then at the end, it, I kind of run out of time in Iceland and had to do the lab work a little bit uh, uh, more rough. <laughs> mm. I had to uh, change my methods a little bit on it uh, to make it in the time and with the equipment I had on hand. Um, so it would have been helpful, I think, if I if I would have like planned this out a little bit better. Uh, if I had the, the yeah, if I had the confirmation of a lab like I can do like this, 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 and this beforehand. But on the other hand, it's like you can't plan anything half a year in advance, and uh, once you just have to say, okay, I'm 
going to do it like this and uh, part of it will definitely work out and if the other part doesn't work out okay that's an outcome as well <laughs> or something you can learn from as well sure sure yeah that's something i'm experiencing in my phd right now i just wish i had more time <laughs> to finish <laughs> to finish stuff so but you're right it's uh it's all about the planning but then to not worry too much if it doesn't go to plan mm. sure all right so what are your do you have any plans for the future would you like to go back to the polar uh, to the arctic or to the antarctic even <laughs> yeah, I would definitely like to go back to the Arctic. I would like to see, see Greenland. I'm a bit hoping that there might be maybe a uh, place for me. And there's this, there's we once a year there's an expedition of this uh, lecturer in Freiburg who goes to Greenland. And I'm a bit hoping that I can maybe join them next year. Um, but as well, I want to... Um, I would like to go to the Arctic Fox Conference, which is in okay. Longyearbyen. Ah, Svalbard. That would be lovely. Svalbard, yeah. 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 And that would be very nice. Um, mm -hmm. That would be nice. On <laughs> one hand, it's a conference, which has, uh, but on the other hand, it would just be an opportunity as well to visit Svalbard. And yeah, I think it's uh, special. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Mm -hmm. So you plan, so you'd quite like to stay in Polar kind of research in the future it's sorry it's an impossible question i hate people asking me about my future so <laughs> i'm just i suppose i'm just wondering because um like you say you're kind of a early career polar person academic as as, as a lot of us here on apex polar times are i just kind of wonder what your first impressions of polar academia are and whether um you know, just in general, it's, it's, it's hard to compare to any other, <laughs> to anything else, but uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think it's uh, all pretty nice and welcoming. Um, the only contact points I had so much were with uh, my supervisors at the Institute, which is not uh, strictly academia. And with the like the there's this Arctic Fox conference when there and, and there are as well some preliminary seminars. One is on Thursday <laughs> uh online, and that's all pretty nicely accessible and welcoming. And um I have the feeling it's it's pretty a warm community. Just from the from the cold calls I made and from the emailing and everyone was really excited about people being into uh, research in the polar region. I would say, <laughs> but yeah. Good. Well, obviously here at Polar Times we love polar research. Obviously, we're not <laughs> we're not going to say anything different. I suppose it depends. Some people have bad experiences, but you can probably say that for any kind of category of academia. I'm sure. No, yeah. Yeah, okay, lovely. Anything else that you wanted to talk about? Well, I just can encourage everybody to, uh, if you have a vision on your mind, uh, what, what you want to do as a project, just try to do it. <laughs> just go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that worked out for me as well, very well. That brings us to the last part of the episode. We like to call it the Polar Plug. And this is just where we give you, uh, Dominic, our lovely guest, the chance to talk about something that you've not mentioned already, something that you'd like to share with the general public, just an opportunity for you to use this 
podcast as a platform to talk about anything that you think is important, polar-related or not. It can be absolutely anything. You know the drill. People, person, paper, whatever you like. So without further ado, with this week's Polar Plug. I want to give props definitely to uh, Oli, which is my uh, friend here in Freiburg, who introduced me to all the important people and to Esther, my supervision in uh, Iceland. Yeah, definitely. They both are really helpful and are really, uh, yeah, great support for me. Okay, lovely. That sounds great. And I'm looking forward to reading your research when, when, if and when it gets published, as I'm sure it will be soon. Sounds great. I want mm-hmm. to, at least. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I get through the peer review. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> okay, everyone, watch this space. All right, lovely. That brings us to the end of another episode of Polar Times. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening and for coming back. Um, please don't forget to uh, like, rate, and subscribe to Polar Times anywhere that you get it on your little podcast apps. That would be lovely. Thank you. We have an email address uh, where you can contact us to recommend a guest or give us any feedback or anything like that. That email is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. Once again, that email is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. It's all lowercase, there's no spaces or anything like that. So, yeah, all that remains is for me to thank my guest, Dominic. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you very much, Jack, for having me. I hope you've had a good time. Yeah. <laughs>Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own and do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.